lesson today comes from the Gospel of Luke, the first chapter, beginning with verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, And the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy He will be called Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. So Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the the child in my womb leapt for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary sang, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant Surely from now on generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm, has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, And sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. According to the promise he made to our ancestors. To Abraham and to his descendants forever. And Mary remained with her cousin about three months. And then returned to her home. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you bow with me for a moment of prayer? Dear God, our Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. 
I was channel surfing last week and came across the classic Carol Burnett 5 DVD collection <laughs> for only four payments of $19.99 plus shipping and handling. One could purchase hours and hours of Burnett's popular variety show, including three holiday specials, behind-the-scenes tours of the original studio, and if you acted immediately, Burnett would hand-sign the gift box of your DVDs. Now, while the announcer made this very convincing sales pitch, clips of Burnett's comedy sketches ran across the screen. I was hooked when my eye caught the comedian as Scarlett O'Hara sashaying down the staircase in the plantation home of Tara, dressed opulently in the green parlor curtains, complete with the fringe epaulets on her shoulders and the curtain rod across her back, <laughs> gone with the wind. As I surfed on, my mind began to click through the memorable one-liners from that iconic movie. Rhett Butler's classic reply to Scarlett's impassioned pleas, and he looked her directly in the eye and he said, frankly, my dear, I don't give up. Well, you can fill in the rest. <laughs> my personal favorite from that movie, however, is Scarlett's reply to Melanie's frantic appeal that Scarlett devise a plan so they could get enough money to pay the taxes. But with an uptilt of her little chin, Scarlett resolved, I'll think about that tomorrow. And the line that applies to the scripture reading I read today and to this sermon came amidst the excitement of Melanie's imminent delivery of her child with Ashley when Scarlett corners the scatterbrained housemaid, Prissy, demanding that she be the midwife for the impending birth, to which Prissy cried excitedly, Miss Scarlett, I don't know nothing about birth and no babies. Now, I don't want to use that quote as a disclaimer for my obvious lack of shared first-hand experience with the two main characters in this text. I just want to state the obvious, that I, like Prissy, don't know nothing about birthing no babies. <laughs> but the Annunciation to the Virgin, the leaping unborn prophet, the, the conversation between Mary and her kinswoman Elizabeth, Mary's magnificent sung response is a great story that captures the unfolding of God's plan for love, which has literally changed the course of human history. I know a great story when I hear one, and this is a great story. When I imagine the setting for the account of the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary, I somehow always picture it happening at night. It doesn't say that in the scripture. But I, I guess it seems to me to be easier to pay attention to God's voice when the messenger comes in in the darkness, you know, when the, the lights are off and the cell phone isn't bleeping and flashing and the TV isn't blaring and there are no other voices clamoring for our attention. And if the angel were to appear, I, I somehow imagine the angel giving off a sort of a holy, heavenly glow. It would be easier to see that in the darkness than in the broad daylight. And most of the time, when angels appear and begin to speak in the Bible, they begin with these words, do not be afraid. Maybe it's because angels in the Bible aren't the gentle, feathery, gauzy creatures that we see on our greeting cards or have on our souvenir mugs. 
they are powerful. They speak with God's voice, and they usually come bearing a message from God that might very well make the hearer shake in his or her sandals. Certainly that's the case here. Mary is just a young girl. From what we know of marriage customs of the time, she could have been as young as 12 years old. And she's engaged. She's in the midst of her engagement to Joseph, which was actually a contractual agreement. It was a legal marriage contract. In fact, if Joseph had died during that year, Mary would have been considered a widow. It was real stuff. But she hadn't yet been taken to live with Joseph in his family home. So for her to become pregnant would have been a scandal of huge proportions. Even an angel showing up to announce that Mary will conceive and bear a son is definitely frightening news, seemingly guaranteed to create for her an uncomfortable experience, if to say the least. But Mary doesn't seem to be afraid at all. She doesn't even seem surprised at the angel's presence. She's perplexed by his greeting and ponders what sort of greeting it might be. Mary's good at pondering things, but there's no record of her shrinking in fear, gasping in terror. Mary just listens to the angel in a kind of calm wonderment. And after listening to the angel's astonishing words, she just has one question. How can this be since I'm a virgin? She doesn't say, do you know what this will do? It will shame me in front of my family. Do you know how this could ruin my life? It's even life-threatening what you're asking. And the way the Bible reads, it sounds as if this is a done deal, but can you really imagine our God revealing his plan for love would force this kind of a thing on a young and innocent girl? Would God place her in such a scandalous and perilous situation without her consent? I don't think so. And in fact, after the angel explains what will happen, Mary's words show that she gives her consent. The angel's words actually are conditional. This is what will happen if Mary agrees, rather than a statement of what is already written in stone. Mary's only question of the angel is just about the logistics. There's no suggestion of reluctance or, or foot dragging. And when the angels explain God's plan to her and given her a sign that God can do things that literally seem impossible, the virgin girl offers herself, in the words of St. Paul, as a living and holy sacrifice. Here I am, I'm the servant of the Lord, let it be with me according to your word. Now having learned from the angel that she will give birth to the Son of God, Mary hurries to her miraculously pregnant relative Elizabeth in the hill country. She travels approximately 100 miles in the region south, into to south in the region of Judah, and this would have been about a five-day journey. Amazing trip for a teenage girl. She finds Zachariah's house, knocks on the door, and enters and greets her kinswoman Elizabeth, who she is, according to the scriptures and according to the angel, just like that, six months pregnant. The intimate conversation between the two women reveals that the child that Mary is to bear is more important than the child John. It also shows God already at work in, to overturn the world's structures and expectations. 
the spotlight shines on Mary and Elizabeth, two lowly shamed ones through whom God has chosen to initiate his transforming plan of love for the world. Mary's first words prompted immediate yet silent response from Elizabeth's unborn child. John leaps according, acknowledging both Mary's presence and the significance of the child she carries in her womb. John's reaction to Mary's voice fulfills Gabriel's prophecy to her husband Zachariah about his promised son. It's earlier in the text we didn't read this part. But this is what Gabriel said, even before the birth of your son, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. So even in the womb, John takes his role as one who points to the coming one, and he starts by leaping with joy. Though Luke clearly signals that the unborn child's leaping is prompted by the Holy Spirit, is Elizabeth, John's mother, who takes the role of prophet by speaking the prophetic word in this scene. Now, it is important to note that the last utterance by a Hebrew prophet came from the mouth of Malachi 400 years prior to this meeting between Mary and Elizabeth. Listen to the, what the prophet has to say. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be like stubble. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day the Lord comes. God chooses Elizabeth to break his 400-year silence. She is filled with the Holy Spirit and proclaims what Mary has not yet told her and what is not yet visible to the eye. Mary's pregnant. Furthermore, through the Spirit, she knows whose Mary's child will be because this is what she calls Mary, the mother of my Lord. Now, Elizabeth not only prophesies, but she blesses. Mary is blessed not only for her status as the mother of the Lord, but also blessed because of her trust in God's promise and plan. Now, our English translations sort of obscure the fact that Elizabeth uses more than one word for blessed. When she pronounces Mary blessed among women and proclaims the fruit of Mary's womb as blessed, she uses the term eulogelomenos, which emphasizes both the present and the future generations will speak praise and speak well of her and her child. But when she says, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what the angel told her, she uses the word makaria, the same term that Jesus uses to bless people in the Beatitudes. So we might well translate Elizabeth's words here as happy, is she who believed. Mary is blessed because despite all expectations to the contrary, Mary's social status is reversed. She will be honored rather than shamed for bearing this child. But she has also been blessed with divine joy because she has believed that God is able to do what seems impossible. By greeting Mary with honor, Elizabeth also overturns social expectations. Well, think about it. Mary is an unwed pregnant woman. She might expect social judgment even from her family, shames, ostracism. Yet Mary knows, but Elizabeth rather, knows from her own experience the cost of being shamed and excluded. Remember back in her culture, 
Woman's priority in life was to bear children, so as an elderly, infertile wife, she had endured a lifetime of being treated just as a failure. Elizabeth's response to her own miraculous pregnancy emphasizes that God's grace has reversed her social status. This is what the Lord has done for me when he looked favorably on me and, and took away the disgrace that I have endured among my people. At long last, Elizabeth, in her old age, is an honorable married woman pregnant with her husband's son. And when Elizabeth welcomes her young cousin, Elizabeth practices the same kind of inclusive love that Jesus will show to the outsider, to the prostitute, to the sinners. Elizabeth sees beyond the shamefulness of Mary's situation to the reality of God's love at work even among those whom society pushes aside. Elizabeth's words and actions invite us to reflect on our own openness to the ways that, that God chooses to act in our world. So think about this for yourself. What is God doing through the unexpected people in your little corner of the world? Where is God at work through people whom our neighbors maybe even fellow church members often exclude or treat as shameful. John Prime, American country singer and writer, a songwriter, often invites us to consider. So he says this, so if you're walking down the street sometime and spot some hollow ancient eyes, please don't just pass them by and stare as if you didn't care. Say, hello, hello in there, hello. Will we listen to the Spirit's prompting when the bearers of God's new reality show up on your doorstep or my life? One of the important lessons we learn from this passage is the benefit of fellowship and, and communion between believers. Hearts of both of these women are transformed and renewed. Their minds are lifted up by this encounter. Without the visit, Elizabeth might never have been so filled with the Holy Spirit, and Mary might never have sung that magnificent song of praise. The words of the old proverb are deep and true. Happiness communicated doubles itself. Grief grows greater by concealing. Joy grows greater by expression. We should always regard communion with other believers as a means of grace. It's a refreshing break on our journey, on that narrow way to experience and to express to others that are traveling along our experiences. It helps them, it helps us, and it becomes the closest piece of heaven that we're gonna get this side. This is what Helen Keller says. Walking with a friend in the darkness is better than walking alone in the light. <clears throat> Elizabeth then calls Mary the mother of my Lord. These words, my Lord, really familiar to our ears, and sometimes we can miss the full impact of that meaning. At the time they were spoken, they implied a whole lot more. They were nothing less than a declaration that the child who was to be born of the Virgin Mary was the long-promised Messiah, the Lord of whom the prophets had spoken since before the time of Isaiah. The mother of my Lord is a confession worthy of placing parallel and side to side to Peter when he says to Jesus, you are the Christ. 
Mary's soul was so filled with awe and praise that she breaks into song. We call it the Magnificat. Let's call the first stanza Undeserved Grace with the subtitle, God's Gift Delivered in Person. Mary calls God my Savior in the opening of her song. Only sinners need a Savior. Mary sees herself as a sinner like the rest of us in need of rescue. She sings of God looking on the humble condition of his servant. She recognizes that her littleness both in the world's eyes and in God's eyes. Her words tell us that Mary felt totally unworthy to be chosen of God, just another poor girl among thousands who lived poor lives in the backwater towns of a captive nation. And Mary is struck by how incongruent God's choice is from how humans tend to make choices and choose. I've discovered for myself that there's always a question that arises in the heart of a person who understands how much grace it takes for God to choose them. Why me, Lord? I know my sin. I know my fallibility. I know how fickle my heart is, and you are perfect. So how is it that you would choose the likes of me? Mary understood that question. Humility and loneliness are the abiding marks of someone who has stood in the presence of God long enough to realize that even though we deserve punishment for our sins, instead, God offers mercy. This motivates Mary to continue, and she sings about God's actions toward her as, as evidence of God's mercy, of divine mercy. In 50, she sings that God's mercy is from generation to generation to upon those who fear him. In the first stanza, we see something wonderful and true about God. God loves the underdog. God loves the disqualified. God loves the unimpressive. There's a place for us. Mary stands before the Lord just like you and me, flawed, with nothing to merit God's favor, nothing to earn anything but deserved judgment. And Mary is amazed that God, who knows her so well, chooses her anyway. So am I. Here's a girl you won't find. Uh, it's, a, it's a place that she has found in herself, simply a willingness to open herself and be God's gift. But buckle your seatbelts, my friends, because the second stanza is coming. This is where Mary turns her attention to the institutions of the world. She interprets the meaning of Christ's coming to planet Earth. So let's call this second stanza Rescuing Power with a subtitle, God's Strength Literally Changes Everything. Mary sings of radical reversals from what our world values, shifting everything we've tried to establish so that it magnifies God's justice for his people. And there will be three distinct groups of people who will be impacted. God will rescue the helpless. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. Now, Mary's just a young girl. She's not a political analyst. She's just standing in the house of her relative out in the hill country outside of in Judah. And she's just singing. But she sees the truth that is coming. 
her boy child will end all the centers of power that men have established on this earth. This baby is God's signal to power brokers all across society. The end of human strutting and self-centered ambition has come. I love the opening line of verse 51. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. When my brother and I were just little guys, we would spend time with my grandfather. And we did all kinds of fun stuff. And sometimes we would challenge him or he would challenge us to an arm wrestling match. Now because our arms were so much shorter than grandpa's, we'd put stacks of Reader's Digest to hold up our elbows. And I always got to use two hands because I was the littlest and half my body weight. And sometimes as we got started, it was looked like we were gonna win and grandpa's hand would go back and till just the right moment when he would make his choice and then he'd just roll us over and we'd fall on the floor. I'll laugh because it was part of the game, it was part of our fun. But when I think of how many overpaid sports figures, how many puffed up business executives, how many self-consumed celebrities, how many pride-filled political leaders have in their bloated self-conceit tried to arm wrestle with God and in doing so, walking all over other folks. I like to think of this verse. So, if you're caught up in this world's values, if you're out of your own options this morning, if you feel like you've been dealt a crummy hand in life, I got good news for you today. Bring your case to God. Don't make fame or wealth your goal. You don't have to despair over politics. You don't have to lose sleep over how unfair your boss treats you. And you don't have to seethe over how wronged you've been throughout your life. Let the song of Mary comfort you. You see, God's just letting the powerful exhibit their puny influence for a little while. But one day he'll say, enough. One day the words of the prophet Isaiah will come true. Justice will flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream washing away all the things that are wrong and settling things that are right. Bring your case to God. He is the helper of the helpless. Because God will exalt the humble. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly, Mary sings. He breaks their bows. He blasts their projects. He brings them low. The meek, they end up inheriting the earth. Mary's song means that we need to reverse our ambitions if we want to succeed in God's world. So we don't have to buy into the hype that dishes out and says that if we're going to get by in this life, you've got to be aggressive, you, you've got to blow your own horn, you've got to pat your own self on your back. There's a higher law at work rather than the law of the jungle. It is Jesus who says this, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself, they're the ones that are exalted. So we're called to seek humility, not glory. Labor for the Lord, not for yourself. Stop caring who gets the credit. Give without expecting anything in return. That's the plan and the path to greatness in God's kingdom. And then Mary sings, He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. God's looking for people who are hungry for him. 
He passes right by the self-sufficient. What did Jesus say? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because what? They will be filled. That's why 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, God has chosen the world's foolishness to shame the wise. And God has chosen the world's weak things to shame the strong. God has chosen the world's insignificant and despised things, the things viewed as nothing, so he might bring to nothing the things that are viewed as something, so that no one can boast in his presence. The church of Jesus is for people who acknowledge their own emptiness. He loves the forgotten, the passed over. He pledges himself to those who know they are the nobodies, the last, the least, the losers. He shows mercy to those who don't deserve it. He chooses the lowly over the proud, and he seeks out the hungry, and he fills them. Then Mary concludes her song like this. God has helped his servant Israel in the remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. And Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months and then returned to her home. And today we wait in anticipation as the story of Emmanuel, God with us, continues to unfold as the plan of love literally becomes that little bit of heaven on earth until Christ's final coming at the end of the age. There is a story told about a famous monastery which had fallen on very hard times. Once it was a great order. It was now nearly deserted. Visitors no longer came to be nourished by prayer. A handful of old monks shuffled through the cloister, prayed to God with heavy hearts. Deep in the woods surrounding the monastery was a little hut that the rabbi from the nearby town occasionally used for hermitage. As the abbot of the monastery agonized over the future, it occurred to him that he might go visit his friend, the rabbi, who perhaps could offer a word of wisdom. When the abbot explained the reason for his visit, the rabbi responded, well, the only thing that I can tell you is that the Messiah is among you. The next morning, the abbot told the monks what the rabbi had said. The Messiah is among us. In the days, weeks, and months that followed, the monks pondered this riddle, wondering what it could mean. The Messiah is among us? If he meant anyone, he must have meant the abbot. Or, on the other hand, he might have meant Brother James. Clearly, James is a holy man. Certainly, he could not have meant Brother Elred. He gets so crotchety at times, but... On second thought, Elred is almost always right. But surely not Brother Philip, he's so passive. But then, mysteriously, he is a gift for somehow always being there when you need him. Maybe Philip is the Messiah. As they contemplated in this manner, the old monks began to treat each other with extraordinary love and respect on the off chance that one of them might actually be the Messiah. They lived with each other as people who had finally found something worth living for, loving one another and themselves as if loving the Messiah. And that 
is God's plan for love. Will you pray with me? O love who came down at Christmas, softly sleeping, sent from heaven, shining light against the cold, renew me, waken my soul, bring me out of darkness, awaken my spirit. Word of God, born in darkness, gift of wisdom from afar, refresh us, open our hearts, bring us out of darkness, open our lives. May your light burn in us, may your love be endless, may you always be with us. Child of God, sleeping Savior, as you rest, the world awaits, needing forgiveness, needing your kindness. Now you have found me. Waken my soul. Bring me out of darkness. Waken my spirit. O love, come down. Amen.